Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Who's Your Data year-end review episode, where we revisit some of our favorite guests and their insights into how data and AI have been used this year. Early in the year, the internet broke with everyone uploading AI-generated avatars of themselves adhering to impossible beauty standards using Lenza AI. This, along with the mass popularity of ChatGPT, Dolly, and other generative AI apps, resulted in episode 16, where we talked to author and AI artist Terry Spataro about AI-generated art and whether it was the end of human creativity and artistry. On the topic of privacy and copyright, here's what Terry had to say. You're not quite sure, like in some cases, the lesser known tools that are out there for creativity, like what are they doing with your photos or even the information that you're prompting? Copyright is a huge concern because now we're seeing like these legal cases in which there are two things happening, like copyright office gave copyright to a book that was created in using um, Mid Journey to Illustrate. And then they revoked it. But then I just saw recently that that was a mistake. And now I think they got the artist got copyright on it. But also it's the copyright of using like in the we were all learning how to use um, Google Colabs in one of the notebooks, which was Disco Diffusion. The example that was used in there was Ryszkowski and Kincaid. I personally thought that Ryszkowski and Kincaid, I'm like, wow, they're going to be you know, no names now, they're all over, but everybody's using it. And I didn't realize that that example was never vetted by Ryszkowski and Kincaid to use their names like that. So I think that was something that was a, a learning curve for all of us to understand. In the example of like creating art that in which you're prompting using known artists or even individuals, I highly recommend don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it or don't make it public. If you're trying to learn about what you're doing, okay, but don't don't make it public. I just think learn it, don't do it again. Learn, you know, what makes a really good prompt without having to say Kincaid or Rishkowski or any any artist. Because if you want to emulate something like Degas, just impressionistic, blues, you know, pastel, charcoal that goes around it, the type of colors without having to use Degas' name in there or Van Gogh. In episode 17, we took a look back at the pandemic and spoke to Norik's Emilia Bird Garcia and Lucy Rabinowitz Bailey about how data and AI were used in their public health study to understand the effects of the pandemic on mental health. Here are Lucy and Amelia giving us some insights on how they used it in their research. Um, I could start by answering how we've used it on the How Right Now project research specifically. Um, so we actually use a natural language processing tool called GUID in our research, and NLP is an AI approach. And this tool cre creates visual networks of news, blogs, and articles in the publicly available media space. And what that allows us to do is get a snapshot of like important themes in the news related to our topics of interest. And it really helps us supplement our research findings derived from published or peer-reviewed literature or any of the other data sources that Amelia mentioned in addition to the survey, the interviews, the focus groups. So the network created by the QUID machine learning process 
really helps us see connections to issues and topics that we may not have seen going into a regular search using, you know, a traditional database of journal articles. And that really helps us understand, expand our understanding of the topic. And that is really critical during COVID, right? When things were constantly changing and the conversations in the news were really kind of directly informing and impacting people's emotional states um, in a way that we thought this was a really critical data set to tell this full story of COVID and emotional well-being. I would say as as a, as an organization, one of the big areas with AI, of course, that we're concerned with, but that's been, I think, documented quite well um, in the media is the issue of bias and the fact that there's always going to be these models are are developed by humans and they're trained on data that's collected by humans. And so there's inherently um, a bias to to them. And we've seen this reported in terms of uh, the release of Dolly, right? And, and the fact that you type in doctor and it spits out an image of a white man. And so we're, we're seeing how some of the biases are just very kind of on the nose in terms of what these these AI models are are producing. And so at NORC, we're really excited to be um, exploring um, the mitigation of such biases in the development of these models. And in particular, we've got a new project going on where we're working on the topic of, of vaccine misinformation, which disproportionately affects communities of color and other historically marginalized communities. So we are starting to work on that. We are early in the process, but we hope to have more insights later um, and throughout the course of this year in terms of how do we develop models that address these biases um, in the data and, and in fact can help us identify misinformation more effectively. Still on the topic of health, after the historic overturning of the Roe versus Wade decision by the Supreme Court, new interest and concern rose in regards to femtech apps vis-a-vis -vis privacy and potential use of their data to prosecute women. I spoke to Bethany Corbin, a femtech innovation and data privacy lawyer, who had this to say about the effect of the decision on the data privacy landscape for femtech apps and women's health. Yeah, I think it had a huge impact on the data privacy landscape for women's health because, as I mentioned before, right, women weren't really thinking about this, right? They were really, honestly, to be, you know, to be frank, willing to exchange some of their most sensitive and intimate health data for these algorithmic predictions and these different types of products. Since that Dobbs decision came out, that women have been much more attuned to what their apps are doing. And because of that, we've seen a shift in how femtech companies and founders are having to respond in order to keep their apps and their products competitive. And that's something we hadn't really seen before. Um, it's something we're starting to see trickle down into other areas of health tech. Um, mental health is the other area that's kind of gotten some backlash over the same time period about data sharing practices. But really that you know, insight and attention is being concentrated on femtech right now. We've seen companies, as we just talked about, right, flow changing and having an anonymous mode. Uh, we've seen other companies coming out and telling consumers, here's what they're doing to protect privacy, right? Here's how they will or they won't share data with law enforcement officers. Um, but mostly, right, there's a generalized fear, there's generalized panic. And I've started to see 
a loss of trust in femtech, uh, which I cannot blame women for that. You know, you have to be comfortable with the technology that you're using. And so I think what we also see since the Dobbs decision is an industry that either has to step up or it's going to lose its consumer base. And it's for an industry that I think has a lot of potential in the future to really revolutionize women's healthcare, especially as we're expanding into those more chronic care conditions. So we risk losing all of that innovation and development if we don't shore up our privacy practices um, and our data privacy and security frameworks. And so that to me is, you know, kind of a big call for help that we've had since the Dobbs decision um, and something that a lot of femtech founders are stepping up to the plate and doing. We've also seen privacy now being used as a differentiator. And that was something that we didn't really see, you know, prior to the Dobbs decision. But now companies, especially in femtech, are able to say, hey, here are all the great privacy, you know, enhancing technologies that we're using. Here's how we're being transparent about our data privacy practices. And that is drawing more and more consumers to those specific types of products. Um, so that's actually become a differentiator lately. One other topic we discussed was the lack of diversity in the data used to train femtech apps. Data from underrepresented communities is lacking and causes products to be inaccurate. Bethany addresses the issue of lack of inclusivity in femtech and how the Dobbs decision will affect that. So I would say, especially at the very beginning of the femtech industry in 2016, we were not getting accurate, inclusive products. And a lot of that had to do with how these devices were being created and the assumptions that the creators were making. So for instance, there was a popular period tracking app during that time, right? And it would use imagery that was, you know, pink and flowery for women's health care that was kind of, you know, made a lot of women cringe. It would, you know, if you're coming up on your ovulation period, it would tell men, you know, your, your partner to bring you nice flowers, right? Or to make sure that you were wearing nice underwear. And so there were a lot of these assumptions about, you know, what people were using these apps for. Um, there was a lot of exclusion, especially of the LGBTQ community and how these apps were designed. For instance, one app, whenever you had to input your sexual position, it would only use banana icons. And so there was no other way to change that, right? Um, there were a lot of things that were very insulting to consumers. So definitely in the beginning, not a lot of inclusivity. I will say that we still don't necessarily have the level of inclusivity and diversity of data that we absolutely need in these apps. Um, a lot of these apps are being trained on, you know, kind of a homogenous data set, um, usually white women, right? Or, um, you know, there might be a little bit of, you know, diversity included in there, but it's usually not a lot. Um, these sample sets for, we're just thinking, you know, mainstream femtech, right? Now, obviously, there are a lot of companies that do it right. But generally, you know, there's not necessarily a prioritization of diversity and inclusivity in these test data sets that the algorithm is trained on. And that could then lead to these inaccurate predictions for different types of ethnicity groups, right, or minority groups who didn't have representative samples training the algorithm. And I think with women's health, right, there's this assumption that women's health care will be the same across all of the different, you know, races and ethnicities. And that's not true. I mean, there have, yeah, there have been studies that show that, you know, Indian women experience menopause at different ages than white women. So it's really necessary. And one of the things I absolutely push for is having a very broad and inclusive data set whenever you're creating these products. Not only will you train your algorithm better, but you're also going to get 
feedback on your design and make sure that your design isn't going to be offensive, right, or othering to certain populations of the community. For instance, Fitbit, whenever it first came out with its menstrual cycle app, people were thrilled. But the problem was Fitbit limited the input for a women's menstrual cycle to just 10 days. Even though the majority of women are going to have menstrual cycles that fluctuate, that are longer than 10 days, right? So if they had used a more inclusive test data group, they would have seen those fluctuations. They would have seen the need for having a longer window of data entry and been able to fix that before the product went to market and caused a huge uproar. Now, the other thing that I want to say kind of on the data diversity issue is what happens after dots? This is where I get really concerned about what's going to happen to the data entries we get for femtech, um, because certain racial and ethnic groups are more prominent in states that have abortion restrictions. And so because of that, they are going to be the groups that are going to be less likely to trust and use these femtech apps, given you know where they're located. And because of that, it may mean that we get less diverse data going forward for these femtech apps to train their algorithms. So that's something that I'm really keeping an eye on. In the spring, as generative AI gained traction and ChatGPT became popular, we turned our attention to various ways that it could disrupt industries. One such industry was that of business intelligence and data analytics. In July, I talked to Ryan Jansen and Paul Blankley of Zenlytic about how they use LLMs to revolutionize data analytics and how it will result in an era of bundling of data tools and methodologies. So Zenlytic comes at a time when there is an explosion of data tools in the industry. Can you talk about the impact that this revolution in general has had to both individual lives as well as to businesses? So, so we, we are definitely at a time where there is a huge kind of unbundling, if you will, of a bunch of different things that you know, exist now as standalone tools, like you wouldn't have even probably talked about data observability as a as a wholly separate tool before Monte Carlo and similar company, companies came along. Um, and you've got a lot of other products like that. Um, I would say one one difference for us is that we're we're one of the we're, we're going after one of the sort of original markets. There's a lot of companies out here making great products, adding adding new markets like new data catalogs, new data observability tools. Uh, we're going after one of the sort of older classic classic markets. And I would say the the main way that we're going to impact people's day-to-day lives is that it's going to change what they're working on. They're doing a really good job defining these metrics, making sure that these definitions are correct or what the business is thinking about when they're defining them. And then la- allowing the large language model to be able to surface those to the end users asking the questions. So I think that's really how the job changes is, and that's really exciting, by the way, is it's like you're spending less time at asking these ad hoc questions, more time doing the really sort of rewarding work of making sure the definitions are are good and doing the advanced analytics work that no LLM is going to do that you really need humans to be writing, you know, complicated code for. I would say generally there's been a lot of talk about bundling versus unbundling. Uh, and I think we've seen unbundling happen over the last several years in, you know, the data industry. Uh, I actually think that generally when, when you have a bunch of growth and innovation, it sort of leads toward the unbundling phase. And then, uh, you know, when things, when the economy turns south or whatever, that starts to head towards bundling, right? And like, you know, tools consolidate at that point in time. And I, I think that we're probably starting to hit that elbow now, partially driven because it's been a less than stellar economy for the last few months. Partially, I think we're at that level of maturity in, in the cycle where people start to look towards bundling. So I think 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know a crystal ball, but I, if I were to guess, I would say we're going to start to see more uh, of the bundling happening as we go forward. You know, I think we're at that stage of the cycle. I agree with you. I think uh, just from having looked at, you know, done sort of the survey of data tools for, you know, specific purpose of uh, data warehouse and visualization tool, there's just so much out there and it's so hard to figure out exactly what to use for what purpose and what connector they have and et cetera. And I kind of liken it to just like the, the streaming wars where, you know, there was like Netflix and Apple Plus and all that. And you've got so many streaming services now that you kind of when you disconnected from cable that it's too much and I think there's going to be uh, a little bit more of a bundling going on now we've hit that elbow probably because now you're paying for streaming services the same that you were paying for cable yeah totally. that's right after all seven of your streaming services exactly right. <laughs> uh, and, it's, and it's also just complexity too right like I, I have to if I'm watching a show now I have to google like where to stream first so I can figure out who has it on their oh streaming God, service yes yes uh, that that's that's like ten times worse in the data world because you know like the number the number the number of interfaces scale as the squared relationship with the number of tools basically right or it's like an exponential relationship yeah. uh, so you know as we add more and more tools we're just adding more and more edges to connect them with uh, right. and it gets messier have, and messier yeah and you have an added layer of um, optimization to that as well you want them to work well and not slow each other down that's a whole other headache yeah. Oh. Yeah, hundred percent. And you have to consider fragility, right? The more edges you have, yes. you know, the more places there is like stuff usually breaks at the boundaries, right? So like, uh, and the more boundaries you have in your stack, the more fragile it becomes. But, you know, I think it's driven by, there's been a huge amount of growth and demand for this. So that uh, look at 2022 as a really roaring tech market, for instance, uh, you know, that leads to people getting optimistic and trying new things. And I think it's great. That's where innovation happens. What's the Warren Buffett quote, right? When the tide goes out, we'll find out who's been swimming without a bathing suit. Mm -hmm. Something like that. So, uh, you know, I think this is a natural cycle where, you know, innovation, you know, happens first when there's lots of opportunities and lots of booming. And then in that consolidation time uh, is when you, you know, test what's really, really valuable and you sort of refine. And then there's going to be another heyday where more innovation happens and, uh, you know, it's and rinse repeat, basically. Turning to the financial services industry in episode 20, I chatted with Rich Edwards, CEO of Mindspan Systems, who had this to say about the strategic role of AI and data in his industry today and moving forward. I think a lot of this is, is very similar to just broadly, you kind of look at like how generative AI is transforming a lot of advertising, marketing, just the general go-to-market, right? Because there is no longer a, a market for bland, boring press releases, right? That has gone away. Now, Microsoft Word will do that for you, right? It, it's more, how can you take what you know and again, be more personalized, be more individualized in what you do? And you now have a set of tools that will help you scale them very well. It will help you be five, 10, 15 times as effective in what you're doing because you can more narrowly focus. It's, do I know who I'm talking to and do I know what's going to resonate with them? And that's really the value. The, the, the heavy lifting, the execution part of it, like that's getting a lot easier. And, it, and this, is, this is one thing I'll say, just kind of stepping away from this particular use case in, in financial services, where AI has done well is it takes the expert and it makes them more productive. Mm -hmm. It takes the engineer. You you look at things like uh, Copilot, right? That Microsoft has done 
uh, on, on the code, code generation, code writing. They built it into their tool set, like, like Visual Studio, et cetera. And it's taken someone who knows what they're doing, who's very effective at it, and says, hey, we're going we're gonna to do things like your, your test routine and um, a lot of code documentation and um, code notation. And we're, we're going to make you like 10 times faster like that. We're going to handle a lot of like the tedious skills that are in there so that you're just focusing on solving the really important problems, the problems that are novel, the things where you add the most value and the stuff that's figurative paperwork that you do, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna take a lot of that away. So it's it's that that's one example, but you see that in a lot of different domains, a lot of different places where it's take the expert and make them much more productive. What I haven't seen is take the novice or the person that has a lot of gaps in their skills or who's not very experienced and make them an expert. So there's still, it, at least as it is today and where you've seen this played out, there's still an awful lot of value in expertise and experience. There, there's a great essay, um, James Courier at NFX, Network FX. NFX is a VC firm out in San Francisco. He wrote a great essay on this about speed times AI. And he, he says, you know, basically what he's, he's telling people he's dealing with, he's largely dealing with like founders and people doing new things, but he's saying, don't be the person that gets it right. Be the person that learns the fastest, right? which he's saying, like, jump in, jump in with both feet. It may not be the thing, and it's going to have a lot of issues, and it's going to be clunky, but you want to be able to, you know, be on the learning path of how do I leverage this in what I'm doing, and how do I get to that point of going from the expert to the 10x With technology being so impactful in the medical field, we turned our attention in the summer to the ethical sourcing of medical data for research purposes. I spoke with Denny O'Brien of DonateYourData.org about a patient-first platform to ethically source medical data for research. Here he is describing the data donation framework they've built. So what we um, have devised based on this new legislative framework that has come out in Europe and goes into force later this year is actually a technological solution that allow people to verify their identity and then give legal consent to the use of their medical data. So for your listeners, if you consider it such as um, blood donation, for example, that the Red Cross does, what we're trying to build is actually a technological solution and a large database of people who have given or revoked their consent to the use of their data. And by doing this, not only does it fulfill kind of the legal requirements, but also the ethical requirements of asking people permission for their most sensitive data sets. Um, so at its core, what we have built is a data donation framework, data donation technology, which allows people to verify their identity and then with absolute certainty, give either or either give or revoke their consent. Uh, and how we're doing that without getting too deep into it is using blockchain technology, which is uh, for those who aren't aware, kind of a, an open ledger that allows you to verify that one set of data has been copied exactly without tampering or without changing. Because one of the big issues that we see with a lot of the private uh, data and tech companies is that you have to trust them. And if they say, oh, you just you know trust us in our database, we're not using your data, but there's no proof of that. 
um, what that actually does is affect adoption. And when you look at the studies on how willing people are to share their data with researchers, depending on the country, it can be as low as 30 to 35% of people being willing to, to share their data. And trust is a major, major element of that. So by using the technology and building the, the tool that we have, what we're saying is you don't actually have to trust us. If you have said, I am a, a donor, or you've revoked even more importantly and said, I do not want my medical data to be used for, for research, you do not have to trust us. You can independently verify that what what we say or that we're doing is actually reflected in our in our databases. Um, and so, what we've really done is solve the issue of trust, which is the major roadblock to adoption of this technology. Continuing on our mission to explore AI and data in health tech, I talked to Yoni Goldwasser, a digital health investor and entrepreneur, about exciting new trends in health tech. Here's what he had to say when I asked him about how accurate AI models would have to be in order to be used in medicine. I think that they need to be at least as good as what's available to the patient otherwise. Again, in the Western world, we think about this as what, you know, this needs to be better than a physician. But you also need to take into account that even, again, in, in the West, we have very different healthcare scenarios. Just as a, as a, as a small example, um, you know, if you take the gold standard of identifying kind of stroke uh, in, uh, from uh, imaging data, I think what, for example, also with, you know, when you're trying to like pass through the FDA, what you're trying to show is that it's better than some sort of gold standard, which is the two or three of very highly trained physicians that are all looking at the data and coming to some sort of conclusion about you know whether or not there's a stroke in the in the uh, image that they're looking at the reality of, of healthcare is actually often very different from that so very often you know a patient will, with a stroke is going to show up to a rural hospital you know in the middle of the night where the only person looking at this imaging at, le at least until morning is you know a young physician with very little training where you see that actually their their accuracy is, is very, very low. And so if you asked me, you know, if you had, if, if in, in that type of situation, if, if the, the, the physician's accuracy is, I don't know, 70% and uh, you come up with an algorithm that is 80%, that's an improvement. It's just hard for us to kind of really admit that and, and to come to terms with that. But that is actually, you know, again, if I were, in the, if I were the patient in that situation, I would prefer the AI to make the decision rather than the young doctor. But it's, of course, a little bit more complex than that, and we can't offer different uh, types of safety to different parts of our, you know, within the same healthcare system. But I do think that some of these applications are going to show up in some regions, in some countries, in some uh, um, applications. I think of battlefield applications. I think they're going to show up um, uh, faster in some areas than others. Since we always want to highlight the issue of representation and diversity in data, I asked Yoni how much of a concern was bias in data and equity in healthcare when he evaluates and advises startups. I wasn't expecting his answer, but it made a lot of sense to me. It's absolutely a concern. I think so. I think most of the conversation that we've had thus far is around what is what is possible and what could happen uh, based on you know, the, just the natural evolution of the technology. You're 100% right that there's this whole element that has to do with whether we should do it or how exactly we should deploy it that, that we've really not touched upon at all. With regards to bias in data, I mean, I think that everything that has to do with equity in healthcare, it's, it's a super complex topic. Using data that is 
uh, biased in some way is is 100% a concern. I think that um, it needs to be a combination of the industry setting certain standards for itself, plus having um, uh, uh, regulators come and ensure that there's adequate level of representation in uh, data. I would say that with early stage startups specifically, I think that there should be some sort of space left in the, in, again, from a regulatory perspective that lets startups um, not address these topics necessarily from day one and let them iterate in that direction. Because I think that what they're often trying to do um, is very resource intensive and risky. And if you uh, force startups to kind of like live up to the same standards that you would a Google or a Microsoft, uh, that would be hugely stifling to innovation, uh, again, around uh, uh, startups. There is space to say that as long, for example, if, that you're, as long as you're not uh, serving of, above a certain size population, uh, you get certain breaks from uh, the regulation. And then, of course, you have to have a plan to catch up with that later because the regulations do kick in once you, you know, get beyond that uh, size. And finally, for our final episode of the year, episode 23, we turn to the music industry. I spoke to Eyal Golshani, VP of Data Science at Vivo, about how generative AI and data is affecting the music industry. I asked Eyal his approach to stakeholder buy-in and trust of data-driven insights. Here's what he had to say. My opinion on it has changed throughout the years. Trying to be looking at a bit more holistically. I came to the conclusion rightly or wrongly that whether willing pe people are willing to be trust you and be more data-driven is directly related to how competitive the industry is. The more monopolistic an industry is, the less likely or the less inclined or the less urgent it is to make use of analytics, analytical tool to make smarter decisions. So that's it. Those are some of my favorite moments of 2023 where I explored different industries with my guests and learned a lot about how they view AI and data in their respective fields. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these episodes as much as I've enjoyed creating them. 2023 has seen a lot of turbulence and on a personal note has been very challenging, but it's time to look forward to 2024 and ask it, who's your data? See you in 2024. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to whosyourdatanow at gmail.com. That's whosyourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>